Good morning, Living Word Church family. It is an honor for me this morning uh, to be joined by members of Living Word Church, Kirk and Connie. And so we are about to have a conversation with them about their life, about their testimony, of how they came to faith in Christ. And so I just hope that you will be blessed by this time. Uh, We're going to follow their journey over the next six weeks. And so you'll be able to kind of hear their story as the introduction to each of my sermons over these next six weeks. And so I'm just going to begin by um, asking them a uh, first question about their life and how they grew up. And so Kirk and Connie, you guys, you guys grew up in the Catholic Church. Yes. And so uh, it's, it was a big part of your life. Uh, so just tell me what your relationship was like with the Lord as you, as you grew up. What, what, what was your life of faith like? Um, I, I grew up in, the, in, of course, Catholic Church, but I also I went to Catholic school. So uh, through elementary, through high school. So I always felt I had a close relationship with God uh, in, in Jesus Christ. And I've always felt that it, it, they were a part of my life. And I could always talk to them as a, a, a personal relationship. So uh, in, in the aspects of, of, I don't know if there's ever been a time that I did not know Jesus Christ in my life. Uh, now, that is the, the extent of that involvement has changed throughout life. But yes, it, I mean, my relationship has always been there. Right. Yeah. I was a little different. So I have always been Catholic, but I did not go to Catholic school. I didn't go um, like Kirk did through the grade school and then high school. So I went to catechism on Sundays or Monday evenings, and that's where I learned about the Catholic religion. My family was um, not really staunch Catholic, so I, I always tell people I don't know that I was very good Catholic in that I didn't necessarily feel like I had to do a lot of the things that the Catholic Church might say are necessary. But I did do all of the things, all of the sacraments that are required. So, you know, we walked through all of that as a family and we went to church as a family and that was always an expectation. So my relationship with God was really kind of like Kirk's in that I, I've always, I always remember knowing Jesus Christ as my Savior. I always remember believing that God is real and that He exists, but I think it was more of a knowledge than it was a relationship for me. So I felt convicted when I did things wrong, but I didn't really know how to manage that relationship. I didn't know what to do with that because my real faith was kind of grounded in the religion that I had. So that has really changed um, tremendously for me. So yeah, just like him, I've always felt like I've known Jesus, but my growth in a, as a re- relationship with him has definitely been impacted. You know, you're raised Catholic in Catholic school. You've been through uh, you've been through the the catechism. You've been confirmed. You know, so you're you're living a Catholic Christian mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but you made a decision in your life to walk away from the Catholic Mass. And that's a big deal. And if you are raised Catholic, you understand the doctrine of the Mass and what takes place mm-hmm. in the Mass. Or maybe some Catholics don't understand, but, but what is taught about the Mass and what takes place with the receiving of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. to say that you're going to make a decision to walk away from that and to come to a Protestant church... Uh, that's a big decision. What what was it in your life? What was taking place that led you down that path to make that big decision? Um, so for me, 
It started 14 years ago. I lost my mom. I was 35 and had a little three children. The youngest was two months and I was really rocked. I didn't feel competent at anything anymore. And so I had a, a real struggle internally. And at first, not knowing what to do about any of that, I really dove into my Catholic faith and I started to do more of what I had been taught to do. So go to Catholic mass every day or, or say the rosary more or you know do these things more. And the one thing I didn't do that I had never done was go to confession. I hadn't been to confession probably in 20 years at that point or whenever I had made my confirmation, that was probably the last time I had been. And so for about a year, I battled with this feeling of um, just inadequacy and I didn't know how to be a mom and I didn't know how to be a teacher. And so I was at daily mass and I had, I had really been struggling um, to feel like my faith was right, but I was doing everything I knew how to do, right? Like I just didn't know what else to do. And so I was at this daily mass and before it started, I felt like, okay, well, the priest is in the confessional, so I'm gonna go do this. And, and I haven't done this in 20 years, but maybe this is it, right? Like this is the one thing I've been saying I won't do. So I went in and if you're not Catholic, there's a process, there's some prayers you say, and you say certain things in the confessional. So I go in and I sit down and the priest, you know, tells me to go and I start and 30 seconds or so into me saying what I didn't know was wrong. He stopped me and said, you're doing this wrong. And I just, I, I was crushed. I didn't, I was like, I just needed somebody to talk to and I just felt like I was doing everything wrong as a mom and I didn't have a mom to call and so I just felt like I needed this and, and I fumbled through the rest of that I don't know what I told him I don't know what sins I confessed I really don't know and I walked out of the confessional and I stood in front of the cross in that church and I made a bold promise just directly to God that I would never put another person between me and him again. And I, and I asked him to help me. I'm like, I need you and I don't know where to find you. And so I just, I need your help. And that was really when I look back over my move out of the Catholic church, although I didn't immediately move out of the Catholic church. That's not what happened. I didn't walk out and never go back. I just knew that there was something wrong with all the things I was trying to do. It wasn't enough. It wasn't fulfilling. Nothing was happening. And for me, that was a catalyst to really push me in the direction of searching for myself, um, reading scripture for myself, um, studying whether it was scripture or, you know, theologians who had written about scripture, what it was I needed to do to truly find the help that I knew that I needed. Because I knew the help needed to come from God, right? It, there was everything in me from our upbringing told me God's the answer, but I, I didn't know how to find that. And that was, that for me is my catalyst moment. I am excited for you to be able to follow their journey over the next five weeks as we hear their testimony about how they grew in their faith, their personal relationship with Jesus Christ and what that is like. And So this is the heart of the series. We are looking at the Reformation. We are looking at the Protestant Reformation. We are Protestants here today, and I'm going to define what it means to be a Protestant later on in this message. But we're Protestants. We're not Catholics here at Living Word Church. And and over 500 years ago, 503 years ago, in October 
1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints against the Roman Catholic Church. And he nailed them at the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And it was one of the sparks, not the only spark, but one of the sparks of reforming the church. And so what we're going to do is, this morning, we're going to look at a message here that my hope is, is that I will communicate to you the necessity of the Reformation. Because there's people who believe that the, the Reformation wasn't necessary, that we really are just still one church. But I want to very boldly and compassionately declare to you that that is not the case. That is not the case. The church had gone woefully in the wrong direction since the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Dark Ages, in the, in the, midi, in the midi, medieval times. And the church needed reform. And I'm here to tell you the church needs reform today. And here's, here's the center of all reformation for God's people. The center of it is God's word. Where have we gone off of Scripture? Where have we strayed from the centrality of God's word? We believe in the final authority of Scripture. And so there are certain tenets that the early reformers stood on, certain foundations that they stood on, that they said that Scripture does not teach this. The church is teaching this. The church has gone off of the center of God's word, and they're teaching this tradition, and they're, they're holding up tradition and superstition Above God's word, they're holding up the, 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 the early church fathers' opinions and ideas above God's word. And, and so they, they stood on these tenets, and, and they're called the five solas of the, of the Reformation. Sola is Latin for the word. Uh, you guys don't know this. You guys are about to find out that I am a stutterer. <laughs> so I can't say the word very well. Um, uh, alone. So... For those of you who didn't know that I have a stutter, I do. I, didn't, I, I knew I had to say the word. I knew this was coming. It's probably why I was nervous leading up to this. But the word sola is alone in Latin. Okay? And so these are the five solas of the Reformation. That the gospel is by grace alone. They stood for that. Grace alone. Faith alone. In Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. And through scripture alone. And so this, these are the tenets, and this is what we're going to look at. In this first message, we're going to look at the necessity of the Reformation. In the next weeks after that, we're going to look at each of the solas of the Reformation. We're going to unpack what the core of the gospel is. So I want to say this on the front end. I know that I would venture to say that 100% of us here today have some type of connection with the Catholic Church, whether it was us personally or we have family members who are either current Catholics or used to be Catholics, practicing Catholics. And so I know that this touches all of us in many different ways. And so my prayer this week, my prayer this month, as I've been studying all of this, this is something I've studied years ago, but studying to preach this subject is, is, is a whole different ballgame. And so my prayer all of this month, as I've been studying this, is God, I want people to be liberated during this series. I want them to be liberated from man-made traditions and superstitions. I want them to be liberated to go to the Word of God. To go to the word of God and find their sufficiency in Christ. And so that is my prayer. So I titled the message this morning, We Still Protest. We Still Protest. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, we ask that you would be with us. God, as we embark on this journey, as we study the Reformation, God, I just pray that, that your will would be done and that you would liberate us in our thinking. Help us to, to see your truth. And God, I pray that your word would have a powerful effect on our lives. And God, I pray that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, 
and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Martin Luther, 27-year-old German monk, 27 years old. He was a German monk, and, and he began a pilgrimage in 1510. In November of 1510, he began a journey. And we're cutting into the, a little bit uh, towards the early middle of his journey and of, of his story away from the, some of the traditions that have gone wrong in the Catholic Church. But this is 1510, and he's a monk, and he, he's getting to make his pilgrimage from Germany to Rome, to the holy city. And he was going to make that trek by foot, a 1,600-foot round-trip journey. 1,600 feet he would, 1,600 miles, excuse me, 1,600 miles round-trip by foot he was going to go to the holy city. And one of the highlights for every Catholic when they would get to go to the holy city and especially those that were clergy, was to get to go to the Scala Sancta. The Scala Sancta, which is Latin for the holy stairs, the holy steps. And it, it is believed, it was believed, it's believed by the Catholic Church that St. Helen took the stairs that Jesus walked up, the steps he walked up when he went before Pilate to be judged and, and to, be, to go through his trial. It's believed that she took those steps, she brought them to the holy city, to Rome, and that these are the steps he walked up. And so it was believed that if you would go up these steps on, on your knees, and maybe some of you have been, been to Rome and you've seen this and maybe you've experienced it, maybe you've walked up the steps on your knees. And so it was believed that if you would walk up these steps on your knees in submission to God and you would recite whatever the priest would tell you to recite, whether it be the Our Father or, or the Hail Mary or whatever other prayer he would have you pray and, and that you would give an indulgence. You would, you would pay for an, an indulgence. You would pay a price and you'd go up the stairs and you'd get to the top and you'd finish. And this was the promise. One of the promises, in, in, it still really is, it is still true for today. They still teach it for today. But in the Reformation days, for sure, it was taught that you could get your loved one out of purgatory early. By, going, by doing this. And so Luther, when you read his writings, one of his greatest regrets, one of his greatest regrets was that his parents were still alive. He knew that this journey was long. He knew that it was hard. And one of his greatest regrets, he writes, he says, I wish my parents had been dead so that when I make this long journey, that when I go up the steps and I get up the steps to the top, that I could free them from purgatory. But he said, at least my grandparents have passed away. So it wasn't an, an, all a loss for him. But what Luther experienced when he went there, his eyes were open to see that, that the holy city, the, the holy church, that mother church had grown corrupt. And he saw priests who were in it for the money, who were corrupted and their motives were corrupted and they weren't living what they preached. And he saw the corruption of the indulgences. And as he gets up to the top and he's praying the prayers, he gets all the way up to the top. He's haunted by a question. And he would write about the question. The question was this. What if it's not true? He wrote that. What if it's not true? What if the church is wrong about purgatory? What if the church is wrong about indulgences? What if the church is wrong about what they say? What what if it's not true? What if the church does not have the power to grant this early exit from purgatory? He wondered whether or not at all that he had just, what he had just done had the effect that the Holy Church confidently said that it would. 
So at the center of Luther's struggle, and if you have studied Martin Luther and the Reformation, you know the center of the struggle was the selling of indulgences. So what, what is an indulgence? What is an indulgence? Well, this is straight from the catechism of the Catholic Church. You've got you to follow me here. I'm going to read a lot from the, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church. But this is an indulgence. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which the church is the minister of redemption, they dispense and apply with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. An indulgence is partial and plenary according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. Indulgences may be applied to the living or the dead. That's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That is an indulgence. And what the, what the, the, the medieval church was doing, what, what Rome had set up, was that if you would pay a price, you could have an indulgence to get early exit from purgatory. They, the church, the early uh, Catholic Church believes and still believes in, in, the, in the teaching of purgatory. A middle ground. We die and we either go, uh, as Protestants, we, we believe we go to be with the Lord or we are separated from God in hell. But they, the, the, the Catholic Church believes that there is purgatory and middle ground. And that you don't know how long you're going to be there. Whether it's uh, a, a blink of an eye or it's a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years. But this is what was taught and what was taught was that if you, would, you could buy an indulgence. And Luther said, wait a minute. Listen, listen. Luther said, wait a minute. How, this is what's going to happen. If, if the church is saying that people can buy their dead loved ones out of purgatory, out of punishment, out of purification before heaven, then that means people are going to live however they want to live. And it doesn't matter. They can live and abuse the grace of God. Luther's original argument wasn't that he didn't believe in purgatory, wasn't that he was against the Roman Catholic Church. It was against the idea that people would live a sinful lifestyle and it didn't matter. And they could pay their way into heaven. And he said, no, this is wrong. And he began to stir in his heart. And it started in 1510 at the top of the 28th step. He looked up and he thought, what if it's not true? What if it's not true? Some seven years later, October 31st, 1517, Luther would nail his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. 95 points of question. I encourage you to go read the 95 theses. It's very compelling. And he nailed these 95 complaints. And I want to say this about Luther's intentions. Uh, What we know of in history, Luther was not intending to start a revolution. He wasn't out to upend the, the, the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to have a debate as a theologian. He wanted to debate with other Catholic theologians, and he wanted to say, wait a minute, we've erred. Scripture doesn't teach this. This is a perversion of God's grace. He wanted to debate that. But, you, but here's what happened. The printing press had just been invented right around the time Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door, to, uh, to the castle church in Wittenberg. And the theologians said, we don't want anything to do with Luther. We don't want Luther. We don't want to talk to him. We don't want to, to, to debate him. But you know what happened? Some young people got a hold of that 95 Theses. And they printed it. And they spread it all over Germany and all over Europe. And that was one of the major sparks of the Reformation. Was that it got spread all around Europe. And it began to build and snowball. 
And so this is what was taking place. And this is what was happening at the heart of the Reformation. In the centuries leading up to Luther's nailing of his disputes with Rome, the church that Christ had founded had become corrupt and it had fallen into great darkness. Listen, the purity of the gospel had been lost and replaced with man-made traditions and systems that attempted to lock up the righteousness of Christ as only being able to be mediated by the church, by popes, and by priests. That's what had happened. The righteousness of Christ was locked up to only be mediated by the church, by popes, and by priests, by bishops. And this is what the early reformers stood against. Glimmers of light would shine through. Men like John Wycliffe and John Huss, they came before Martin Luther and they stood on these principles. They looked at Scripture and said, Scripture doesn't teach that and Scripture doesn't teach that. This is what Scripture teaches about justification, about sanctification. You know, I do believe there's a biblical parallel to the corruption that the church was experiencing in the first century since the resurrection. I believe it's the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. I think that is a biblical parallel of what happened to the church. There's only been one church. You know the word Catholic means universal, right? So when we say Catholic church, it's the universal church. There's only ever been one church. It's the church that Jesus founded. And the church went off of Scripture and developed traditions and superstitions that were not biblical. That were not biblical. And there's a parallel to that. You guys remember what the scribes and Pharisees did with the Ten Commandments? What did they do? They blew them up. They multiplied them to hundreds and hundreds of traditions and superstitions that were not biblical. Look, look at what Jesus said about them in Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. It's a parallel. Even down to the the way the the priests and the bishops and the pope dress. Long gowns. This is what Jesus said about the scribes and Pharisees. They make their fringes long and, and they make bold appearances and they appear to be holy. It's a very clear biblical parallel. So why was the Reformation necessary? I have two main reasons that we're going to look at. I have two questions we're going to answer. Why was the Reformation necessary and where had the church strayed from biblical truth and adopted unbiblical views of the gospel. To answer those two questions, we're going to look at two questions, okay? To answer the two questions of why was the Reformation necessary and why, where had the church strayed, we're going to answer two questions. And answering these questions were essential in the 15th century, and they are no less essential now. So here's the first question. How is a person justified before God? Don't you think that's the most important question anybody can ask? First of all, a definition. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be be declared right, righteous before God. It's a legal term. It means that when you stand before the court of heaven, you are not guilty. Just as if you never sinned, you've been justified. You've been justified. You're innocent. You're not guilty. How can a person be right before God? 
So, so do you believe in life after death here today? Are you going to heaven? Why would God let you into heaven? Why would God let you into heaven? How does a righteous God get an unrighteous person into heaven? Think about it. How does a righteous, perfectly holy God let any of us as unrighteous people get into heaven? How is that possible? How can that possibly happen? It's like oil and water. Can you ever actually make oil and water come together? Or will they always be separate? Always be separate. God is holy and man is sinful. So how is it possible that a perfectly righteous God could ever allow sinful people to come before God? This is the question. How is a person justified before God? Martin Luther famously said this. How do you love God? With a question mark, a question, how do you love God? He said, I hate him. And I hate him because his standards are so high. How do you meet the standards of a holy God? Martin Luther had a guilty conscience always. Whenever he was, when he first became a monk, he would drive his bishops and his priests crazy. Connie said she didn't go to confession for 20 years. Martin Luther went every day. And he would, he would make the priest spend hours and hours and hours in the confessional because he was, he was confessing the sin of his sin, of his motivation, of that motivation, of that motivation. He, he thought, I can't uncover enough. And he would, he would drive them crazy. And, and, and his bishop would say, Martin, Martin, save it for tomorrow. Go home. It's such a guilty conscience. And he saw God's righteousness as something that he could never have, that God's righteousness was against him. That's how he viewed it. Luther saw God's righteousness as something that was against him. But what does Scripture say, right? What does Scripture say about how someone is justified? Look what Romans chapter 1 says. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Wow. How is the righteousness of God revealed? From faith to faith, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All God is against all of us. His righteousness is against all. All of us, we stand condemned before a a holy God. There's no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2, we're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. Listen to this, Galatians 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have, been, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is justified. So how is a person justified before God from the scriptures that we just read? By faith in Christ. By faith in Christ. That's the biblical biblical answer to how somebody is justified is by faith. It's by faith in Christ. Faith in what Christ did on the cross. 
faith alone. This is how someone is justified. The Bible clearly, abundantly says it over and over again from the Old Testament. In Genesis 15, how was, why was Abraham declared righteous? Because he believed. Because he believed it was accounted to him for righteousness. How is a person justified before God? By faith. It's the biblical answer. And what happens when you are justified by faith? One of the most beautiful sections in all of scripture, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why do you need to be reconciled before God? Because the judgment of God is against you. Be reconciled to God. You can be reconciled by faith in Christ. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness, the righteousness of God. Wow. You remember earlier Luther said he hated God? He hated the righteousness of God? Scripture says that we can become the righteousness of God. That's a game changer. That means when God looks at you, how is God going to let you into heaven? What does the Bible say? That when you stand before God, he's not looking at your works. He's not looking if you went up the holy stairs. He's not looking if you said the Hail Marys or the Our Fathers. He's not looking at if you missed confession for 20 years. What he's looking at is whose righteousness are you standing in? And by faith in Jesus Christ, we can stand in the very righteousness of Christ. Amen? That's a game changer. And the reformers looked at it and they said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. These systems that have been developed, this is not what Scripture teaches. I, become right, I can actually become the righteousness of God. That that righteousness can be imputed to me. Not manufactured by what I maintain. But I can stand assured of my justification because of my faith in Jesus Christ. So now... Where had the medieval church drifted from the centrality of that gospel message? It's clear. I, I just gave you a little bit of scripture. I could have I kept you here past, way past lunch. I'm going to keep you here till lunch, but it could have been way past lunch just reading scriptures about how we're made justified by faith. Where had the church drifted? It is so clear. And how is that still reflected in the Catholic church today? Rome's view of justification centers and still centers, centered and still centers around the relationship between the believer and the church and the believer and the sacraments. Justification came from the church and from the sacraments. So it begins with infant baptism, when original sin is washed clean. That's where justification begins, according to where the church had drifted, and where the church, the Catholic Church stands today. Infant baptism. Look at what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. Baptism is necessary for salvation, for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. The church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism. What did we just read? How are we saved? Faith alone. Is is it an infant? That's why when we dedicate a baby up here, I'm not sprinkling the baby, and he's not... Brooks didn't get into heaven today. He didn't become justified today when we prayed for him. It's not biblical. This was a tradition, a superstition that developed. And this is where the church had erred. They went south. And another step in the process 
for, for Rome, for the Catholic Church, justification is a continual process. You, you, be, you, you are steadily becoming justified. The next step would be catechism, confirmation, and first communion. And then the state of grace. So now you're in the state of grace. You're in the state of grace through baptism. You find yourself in the state of grace. You go through the point where you are confirmed and you have first communion. And then that state of grace is maintained through the sacraments and penance. This is, this is, this is what the church teaches. That your justification as a believer is something that you grow in. And we're, we're going to read that here in just a second. Something that you grow in and that you're in that state of grace and that, and that as you live your Christian life, you have venial sins and mortal sins and, 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 and that when you go to confess your sins, the priest will come and will give you a, 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 a penance to, to, to pay and to walk through and, then, and, then, and now you get back into the state of grace. You guys follow me? That justification is here one day and it's gone the next based upon how you live and, and what you do and what you don't do. And then another part of our justification is the last rites and absolution before death. Listen to what the catechism of the church says about that. The church who, as mother, has borne the Christian sacramentally in her womb during his early pilgrimage. This is what I've just been talking about. During his early pilgrimage. Accompanies him at his journey's end. In order to surrender him into the father's hands. She offers to the father in Christ the child of his grace. And she commits to the earth in hope. The seed of the body that will rise in glory. So even in last rites there's an absolution before death. There's no confidence of assurance of salvation. That we are the righteousness of God. Because justification is not something that's declared. Justification is something that is maintained upon your good works. And you're keeping the sacraments. And you're going to confession. And maintaining it. Do you guys follow that? And then lastly. If all else fails. Purgatory. To cleanse for heaven. For those who were not faithful. Listen to the catechism of the Catholic Church. All who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So you don't go to heaven when you die as a Catholic. You go to a place of cleansing. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. This teaching is also based upon the practice of prayer for the dead. Prayer for the dead. All of these steps sent around a person's relationship with the priest or the church so as to be justified or born again and then to maintain that state. The Catholic Church teaches that justification, yes, is by grace and faith, but with a big distinction. The distinctions we've just been reading. But I want you to hear it from Robert Barron. He's the auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Listen to what he says. The Council of Trent talks about justification, which happens through faith and grace alone. We can't do it on our own. We would agree to that, right? But then it speaks of an increase in justification, which can, through our cooperation, in this we get the Catholic difference. The difference is the capacity to cooperate with the energy of grace so as to grow in justification. We don't grow in justification. We are declared justified by God through faith in Christ's work on the cross alone. Period. I don't, I, when, when I was declared righteous before God, when I placed my faith in Christ, I, I am in him. And that song in Christ alone, no one can pluck me from my hand. No scheme of man can pluck me from God's hands. I am justified by his grace 
alone, no superstition or tradition that, that is not based on Scripture can take me away from my justification in Christ. Not even myself. Jesus said that. That no one can take his people from his hands, his children from his hands. No one can pluck him, pluck us from his hands. This system, or any other system, that points away from the clear teaching of Scripture that justification comes by grace through faith apart from works is a false system. Any system. It doesn't have to just be the way that the church erred, the Catholic church erred. It could be any system. Whether, what, whatever it is, you could, you could be a Protestant believing that justification is by grace through faith, but you could get over into a works righteousness. That's a false system. We are made righteous through faith and faith alone. And so why is it a false system? Because it places the power of salvation into the hands of fallen human beings. God's the one who saves. Not the traditions of men. Not rules and superstitions that are created by men and for hoops for people to jump through. No. God has the power of salvation. And he gets to declare the way in which someone's saved. And he says in his word that we're justified by faith. So the Reformation was necessary because justification before God was locked up and controlled with the traditions, the superstitions, and the authority of the church. That's why it was necessary. How can a person be justified before God? First question. What's the second question? Why else was the Reformation necessary? I'm only giving you two questions. We're gonna, I could have given you 20 questions, but I'm giving you two, and we're going to look at the, some others over the next five weeks. But here's another question. Okay? So we've looked at justification, and now let's look at mediation. Who is the mediator? This is the next question. Who is the mediator to bridge the gap between God and man? We see what Scripture teaches about being justified before God. Who gets to bridge the chasm between God and humanity? Who has the authority to do that? What does Scripture say? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6. through 6. There is one God, and there is one mediator. What is a mediator? It's a go-between. It's a lawyer. Gets to make a defense for us. Jesus is the one who makes a defense before God and says, yes, they are righteous because of what I've done for them. They're, he doesn't come, come before the Father and say, they're righteous because, because they, they kept all of the regulations and the rules that you said, Judge, that they must keep. They kept all the rules. Right? They, 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 didn't, they didn't break the rules. No. When, when Jesus stands before the Father and says that we're righteous, he says it's, 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 they're righteous because they placed their faith in what I did. And what I accomplished. There is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is what scripture says. There is one mediator. Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls. And the sprinkling of defiled persons. With the ashes of a heifer. Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit. Offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works. To serve the living God. Therefore he. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant. John 14, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Jesus has said he's going away. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. What does Scripture say? Who the mediator is? Who's the mediator? Who's the one who bridges the gap? 
Is it me? Am I a mediator? Can I be a mediator? No, I'm not a mediator. I don't get to bridge that gap. I get to tell you where to find the mediator. Where had the church erred and left the clear teaching of Scripture concerning the role of Christ as mediator? What traditions and superstitions were added to Scripture? First one is this, the Pope becomes the Holy Father and the Vicar of Christ. There's only one Holy Father. Only one person that can ever take that title as Holy Father. And that is the Holy Father, the creator of the universe. According to Rome, there's been an unbroken line of infallibility passed on from Peter to Pope Francis. Papal infallibility. Papal infallibility is a dogma of the Catholic Church which states that in virtue of the promise of Jesus to Peter, that he will build his church upon Peter, the Pope, when appealing to to his highest authority, is preserved from the possibility of error on doctrine. Initially given to the apostolic church and handed down in scripture and tradition. As the head of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is often called the Holy Father and the Vicar of Christ. Names and roles that apply only to God. He claims the ability to speak ex cathedra, which means that he can speak outside of scripture and declare doctrine. Revelation twenty two eighteen says it curses everyone who adds to this revelation. He wields unbiblical, unholy authority over his followers, usurping the headship of Christ over his church and perverting the work of the Holy Spirit. The Pope has assumed for himself a position of authority that is not recognized by God. Who's the head of the church? Who's the, who, who, who is the authority? Colossians 1 says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not the pope. Charles Spurgeon said this about the Pope. Christ did not redeem his church with his blood so the Pope could come in and steal away the glory. He never came from heaven to earth and poured out his very heart that he might purchase his people so that a poor sinner, a mere man, should be set up on high to be admired by all the nations and to call himself God's representative on earth. Christ has always been the head of his church. This is where the church erred. They placed a mere man in the position of being able to speak outside of Scripture. To be called a holy father. Call no man father. Secondly, the priest becomes the mediator as he administers the Eucharist. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. At the heart of the Eucharist, this is the Lord's table, this is the bread and the wine. The heart of the Eucharist celebration are the bread and wine that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the the Holy Spirit... Become Christ's body and blood. It's called transubstantiation. This is what is believed by Rome. This is where the church had erred. Transubstantiation, transubstantiation says this. It's the belief that the bread and wine become the literal body and blood of Christ. So what does that mean? That means when the priest goes to the sacred place where the, where the bread and the wine are kept and he prays the prayers. What, what is he doing? He is, he is praying for a, a changing and a turning 
of that into the literal body and blood of Christ. And what's happening there is a, is a picture of a re-sacrificing of Christ. Every mass, and this is what I was speaking to Connie and Kirk about in, in the video. If you really understand what the Catholic Church teaches about the mass, then you know that in the mass, this is the belief that the body and the blood literally become, the, the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. And that there is a re-sacrificing of Christ every single mass. And, it, and that is connected directly to, our, to justification. But what does the Bible say? Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That was the old system. A repeated sacrificial system of the Jews, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a what? A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Is it a re-sacrificing every mass? When we take the wafer and the, and the juice, is it a re-sacrificing? No. No. Christ had a once-for-all sacrifice that was sufficient for our, for our justification. Another way in which the priest becomes a mediator is he becomes a mediator as he forgives sins after confession. Listen to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Since Christ entrusted to his apostles the ministry of reconciliation, bishops who are their successors and priests, the bishops, collaborators, continue to exercise this ministry. Indeed, bishops and priests, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, have the power to forgive all sins. So again, I, I want you to hear, I want you, this is not just Ben Bufkin making this up. This is what is taught today. It's where the church erred in the medieval times. It's where they are still in error. Can you imagine? Think about it. If I was a mediator and had the power to forgive all sins. A lot of people here this morning. We should have started at 6 a.m. And y'all should have all came. Yeshua all came and started confessing. If I had the power to be a mediator, no man can be a mediator to forgive sins. No man. Scripture doesn't say that. What does Scripture say? Jesus said this. This is in Matthew 9. He had just healed. He just performed a miracle. And he told, he said that, that your sins are forgiven when you perform the miracle. And, and look what Jesus says. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, the scribes and Pharisees, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said take up your bed and walk. Who has the authority to forgive sins? Christ and Christ alone. What's another form of mediation? I know hang in there you guys with me. It's 1108. I know we're going to be getting out later. Mary becomes a mediator as she intercedes for us. This is the most famous prayer that is used to pray to Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is thou, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That's straight from Scripture. That's Luke chapter 1. That's Gabriel's greeting, and that is Elizabeth's greeting. That's Scripture. But in the 14th century, the church added this. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Ave Maria comes from two portions of the Gospel of Luke. But that last portion was added. Pray for us sinners. She becomes a mediator. She becomes, the Catholic Church teaches also, she's a co-redeemer. She is 
cooperating in redemption with Christ. Another form of mediation is Catholic saints become mediators. So not only is the Pope a mediator, the priest are mediators, Mary becomes a mediator, Catholic saints. There's over 10,000 recognized dead saints in the Catholic Church. You have your patron saints that are the most holy, who live the most holy. They're the patron saints. But Catholic saints become mediators. So this is a little earlier in Martin Luther's life. This is July 2nd, 1505. This is before his journey to Rome. And before he stood at the top of the 28th step and said, what if it's not true? This is before he became a monk. He's walking in a rainstorm in Germany. And he cries out to St. Anne. He cried out to St. Anne and said, help me, St. Anne. Because there was lightning flashing all over. He was fearful for his life. Help me, St. Anne. He's praying to St. Anne. So I want you to think about this just for a second. Let's all pretend. You guys want to pretend with me? Let's all pretend. Let's all go back to 1505. All of us are there. We're in the same rainstorm as Martin Luther. All of us are in the same rainstorm as Martin Luther. I don't know. There's probably 600, 700 people here right now. We're all in the rainstorm. Lightning starts to strike. All of us cry out as Martin Luther. Help me, St. Anne. You know what is just happening right there? We are attributing to St. Anne God-like qualities. Then you multiply that times the billions of people all around the world who could potentially possibly be crying out to St. Anne at the same time. Only God is omniscient and all-knowing. Only God can hear our prayers all at the same time all around the world. That's God-like qualities. This is why we don't pray to or petition dead people. You guys follow me? Some people might say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm attributing, I'm, I'm, I'm just praying to them. But, but if, if you're doing that, if you're doing that, you're attributing to his mother and to the saints the power of intercession that belong only to the mediator, to Christ himself. Prayers to Mary and to dead saints is idolatry. It's idolatry. Why? Because prayer is worship. Prayer is worship. And who you pray to is who you worship. And that's in direct violation of Exodus 19.3. You shall have no other gods before me. Who you pray to is your God. One of the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. This is so profound. Listen to this. One of the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And this answer has got to be pretty significant because it comes from the mouth of our Lord. Luke 11 says this, now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, St. Anne. When you pray, say, Hail Mary. When you pray, say, over the, whatever the list of patron saints you want to go through, there's patron saints that will help you if you lost your keys. There's, there's saints that will help you if you're depressed. There's saints that will help you. And you, if you were raised Catholic, you know what I'm saying is true. It's the list. You can find it. Go on the internet. Go ask, go ask a priest at a local parish. They will tell, there's a, a, a saint to pray to, to intercede for you. And the logic is this, is that they're in heaven. And so they're closer to God than we are. But it violates scripture. It sounds cute. Sounds nice. To say, that, wouldn't that, 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 that's, that, wait, that's logical, right? That makes sense. But it's not, it might be logical, but it's not biblical. 
And what are we? Are we Bible Christians or are we superstitious Christians? We're Bible Christians. He said, when you pray, say, Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He gave us the model prayer. The model prayer is to come to the Father. Look what he said in Matthew 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the, the Father. We have direct access through Christ. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Justification, mediation. Those are the two biggest reasons why the Reformation was was necessary. Two biggest reasons why the church had drifted away from Scripture and they had developed traditions and superstitions that were contrary to God's Word. And we we can never believe, I, I can never believe, anybody gets up here, preaches God's Word, anybody who studies Scripture, we can never believe that it is impossible for us to, to err and to get it wrong. We must believe that God's Holy Word is the final standard for truth, for faith, for, for, for doctrine, for faith, for practice, for how we live our Christian life. It's not the church, it's not the pope, it's not the priest. There's only one mediator. And I just want to say this, listen to me, I'm about to close. If you're here today, and you've been going through that, on, you've been on that hamster wheel, and you've been living a, your life as a Christian, jumping through hoops, I'm here to tell you, you can have assurance of salvation. Drop, let go of the systems that, are like carrots dangling in front of your eyes, dangling in front of you. Listen, and the carrot is the righteousness of God. Hear me. Let go of that system. God doesn't dangle his righteousness in front of you and say, jump through this hoop and do this and and pray this prayer and light these candles and go to this confession and pray to this saint. Here it is. My righteousness is out here. Come and get it. He says, you can have it. Surrender to the work of Christ on the cross by faith and you can become the righteousness of God. Amen? So if you're here today, even in this church and you come every Sunday to this church and you feel like you got to earn back the righteousness of God, drop that system at the door when you leave. And when you come back as a believer in Jesus Christ next Sunday, you come and you stand not in your righteousness, but in the very righteousness of Christ. So we answered two questions. Why was a reformation necessary? Justification and mediation. I got three more questions. You guys ready? <laughs> three, three more questions. Was the reformation necessary? That's my first question. What do you think? Was it necessary? Look, I, I, look, I barely scratched the surface. We're going to go a little, little deeper week after week. Was it necessary? That's my first question. Yes. Second question is, do you know what the word Protestant means? Protestant originates from the Latin word protestory, meaning to declare publicly, to testify, to protest. Take off the A and T from Protestant, and what do you get? Protest. So how do we respond to this? Well, here's my response. We still protest any system of belief that points away from or adds to the finished work of Christ on the cross for our justification. I'm still protesting. 
And we should always protest any system that is a gospel plus system. So how do we respond to this? We respond like this. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. The gift of love and righteousness. Scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry, To final death, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Amen? Amen. Lord, we declare the truth of your word as as demonstrated in that beautiful hymn. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And God, we thank you for the the men and the women who stood in the early church and held up the word of God high and said, no, no, this is not biblical. This is not right. This is not the center of the gospel. God, we praise you for it. We thank you that you, you caused men and women of courage to stand up and the point to the sufficiency of your word, to the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. And God, I pray that we as believers in Jesus Christ, that we would stand against every system, that we would boldly declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the liberation for all those who are in a a system of bondage, whatever it is, a system of bondage of works righteousness. God, may we declare it with boldness and, and compassion and say, come and receive the righteousness of Christ for yourself and be declared right before him. God, I pray that it would burn in our hearts. We thank you for this series. Lord, speak to our hearts. Liberate us here today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. Thank you for being patient today.